Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And we accept, Lord, this this proverb as not only a word of wisdom, but a word of absolute truth. And Lord, it brings great peace and comfort and joy this morning. And I pray that you will strengthen our faith just through our time in your word today. Holy Spirit, speak your word to our hearts. Lord Jesus, we are open to receive your word and to keep your word and to hear from you. And so bless this time, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tomorrow is, as you know, the 4th of July, Independence Day. It's a day, you know, we celebrate with picnics and parades and explosives. (laughs) It's a day when patriotism and national pride tend to to surge and be deeply felt. People putting flags out on their houses and patriotic songs sung. And of course, there are the the requisite parades and, and all that's going on. But according to a recent Gallup poll... Just this last month, a full 78% of Americans are now dissatisfied with the nation's direction. In addition, Gallup has shown that only 30% of Americans are satisfied with the moral, ethical climate of our country. A CBS News and New York Times poll also shows 70% of people have, quote, deep pessimism about the economy and Washington's attempt to fix it, with 53% of those being dissatisfied and another 17% downright angry. Happy (laughs) fourth. Now, I want to say something real clearly up front here. It is far too cheap a shot to lay this on the presidency of one man. And I'm not saying whether I agree or disagree with our current president's policies or his administration's policies. That's not the point. But we are where we are as a country for a lot more reasons than one person. And we need to recognize that. You know, I was, I was born a proud American kid. Growing up in Southern California, I was taught to deeply respect the flag and my country and even my president, whether I agreed with him or not that he was due, the office was due, my respect. I have seen nine American presidents in my lifetime. Some have seen more, some have seen less. I was born in the era of Lyndon B. Johnson. The first president I really remember was Richard Nixon, primarily because the uh, TV broadcast of Watergate superseded Saturday morning cartoons. (laughs) A little frustrating for me. (laughs) You know, I mean, I remember thinking as a kid, what's important here? Nixon was replaced by Gerald Ford, as you know, for a term and a half. And then Jimmy Carter served one term. And Ronald Reagan served two terms. George H.W. Bush followed him with one term. Bill Clinton, two terms. George W. Bush, two terms. And now Barack Obama in his first term. And just five of these men are part of an exclusive club. That is the only living presidents of the United States of America. Five guys, Carter, Bush 41, Clinton, Bush 43, and Obama. And it is an exclusive club. It's hard to get into. You've got to be president for at least a term to be there. Now, you all know, if you've been around here any amount of time, that I'm interested in political things, that I try to keep an eye on what's happening in the world scene and, and in national and international politics. And to me, the politics of power is a fascinating subject. Especially to watch over time as, as presidents and rulers and monarchs and, and kings and dictators come and go. And the changes that take place on the landscape. But eventually you have to come to one of two conclusions in watching all of the ruling of the world. One of two conclusions. Number one, it's all random. It's based on seasons and timing and charisma and message. The right person at the right time just happens to hit and so rises to power. Or, or there's a hand moving all of these things forward. Which is obviously what I believe. Here's my point. Behind all the dissatisfaction and all the pessimism and all the frustration and all the discouragement in our country today, I can't help but wonder if it's all truly related to an ignorance of, or worse, a rejection of the sovereignty of God. 
that if we believed in a sovereign God, if we truly believed there was one hand that was primarily moving all things, that we wouldn't be so pessimistic. That we wouldn't be so discouraged or so frustrated every time we turn on the evening news. Solomon writes, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. It is the hand of the Lord that directs the heart of the king. That's what Solomon's saying. Now, King Solomon wrote this. Being a king himself, he understood these things. And he wrote this proverb at a time of unprecedented peace for the nation of Israel. He was a man of substantial power, you know. He had a great pull and an enormous prestige in the world. And yet Solomon wisely recognized that all rulers are ultimately players on God's stage. That ultimately they all play into his hand. About 450 years after Solomon wrote this, the prophet Daniel would clarify these exact sentiments for King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Daniel 2.21, he said, It is the Lord who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. So, then, for all this national frustration, do we blame God? If He's the one truly in control, are gas prices His fault? Is the economy, well, you know, if the Lord's really in control, is it His deal? Quite the opposite. Our pessimism and our dissatisfaction is directly, again, related to our ignorance of or rejection of His sovereignty. Let me put it another way. The degree to which we accept God's sovereign rule over this nation and even over our leaders is the degree to which we will have peace. The more we accept God's authority and His power and rule, the more content we will be regardless of any circumstances. Because we will understand all things are in the hand of the Lord. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. President Carter was God's man. Ronald Reagan, God's choice. George H.W. Bush, God's plan. Bill Clinton, God's choice for two terms. <laughs> George Bush, God's choice, two terms. Barack Obama, will it be two? <laughs> But it's interesting, Solomon's picture here, what he talks about, his use of of water channels, is is very descriptive in explaining this idea of sovereignty. Let me see if we can get a little deeper in this. Charles Bridges, in his commentary, wrote, A watercourse is an apt emblem of this agency. For after all, the great sovereign, the Lord, directs the most despotic rule, all political projects, to his own ends. In the same way a watercourse runs through its channel. The illusion is evidently to, cha- evidently to channels that were made to distribute water and so irrigate gardens or fields. The watercourse flows naturally in the direction of the channel. God directs the king's heart as his responsible agent without interfering in the moral freedom of his will. How does he do that? I mean, it's the great free will versus sovereignty argument debate that's been going on for a couple thousand years. Is it God's influence, or is it man's choice, or is it something of both? What the proverb tells us is that God will use the free choice, the decisions, the mentalities, the ideologies, even the personalities of kings and rulers to marvelously accomplish His own will. A president chooses a direction and the Lord channels it to his purposes. How does it work? You know, this means that regardless of who it is on earth sitting on temporary thrones, there is one true God in the heavens sitting on an eternal throne. And he cannot be superseded. I want to introduce you to a different exclusive club this morning. Not living American presidents. This one is far more exclusive. In fact, it only includes three people. Uh, Three men who are called by a specific title. All three of them kings. And all three mentioned in the scriptures. The first man is a king by the name of Cyrus. Turning your Bibles over to the book of Isaiah, chapter 44. 
Isaiah 44. Now we've looked at this chapter before. But the relevance of it is too good to pass up. Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 24. The first of three in an exclusive group that we need to look at. Verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the One who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the Maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by Myself and spreading out the earth all alone. causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of His servant and performing the purpose of His messengers. It is I who says to Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up. And I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Who is this Cyrus? I've heard it said that he's actually the great, 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 great grandfather of Miley. Not sure about that. But this Cyrus was truly. Spencer's looking at me like, is this Miley a prophet? Perhaps a theologian of our time? Cyrus was the founder of the Persian Empire. Cyrus, a great world leader. Modern day Iran, by the way. So Cyrus founded what ultimately would become Iran, the Persian Empire, and a people historically opposed to Israel. That's this Cyrus. And God says here, He is my shepherd. Cyrus? Yeah. So Cyrus? This Persian? How can a Persian... Be God's man. How can a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent or someone not of my political persuasion, how can that person be God's man? Listen, this is absolutely amazing, historically verifiable, blows my mind. I guess it shouldn't because prophecy is, as we have seen, always is fulfilled. But this Cyrus, named here by Isaiah, was named 150 years before he was born. Isaiah comes along by the word of God and and names him Cyrus. He's my shepherd. At the time when the name was spoken, people were like, Cyrus who? Billy Ray who? Who are we talking about? No one knew. 150 years go by, a man named Cyrus is born. No one really knows who he is until he rises to power over Persia, comes in. It's a remarkable story. 150 years. But the name is given. And there are specific prophecies throughout Scripture, but this is one of the most specific where God names a man and later that man rises to power and does exactly what God said He would do. Read on. Beginning verse 1 of chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, His anointed. Stop right there. There's the exclusive club. Cyrus, His anointed. God only named three men My anointed. Only three. In all of Scripture. This exclusive club is what I would call the association of the anointed. Oh, other kings were anointed. The people of Israel were his anointed people. But only three individuals in Scripture are called my anointed. Named by God as anointed by God. And Cyrus is one of them. Sean Hannity regularly refers to Barack Obama as the anointed one. What if he was? I mean, what if he really was? What if God says, Barack Obama, he's my man? What if that were the case? Listen, ask any Jew today. (laughs) I'm getting some weird looks. I love this. Ask any Jew today (laughs) if an Iranian leader would be a good choice for a world leader, and what would they say? No way! How would you feel about Ahmadinejad ruling over Israel? What? Ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. 
Cyrus. We don't even know if he was born in Persia. (laughs) We're pretty sure he didn't go to a true Persian school. Read on. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. This was not about Cyrus. It was about the Lord God. That He is sovereign. That He is the God over Israel, that He is in control. Wow. You Bible students, you know the background. Where where Cyrus comes into play, 150 years, the prophecy is given, 150 years go by. The Babylonian captivity of the Jews begins. 607 B.C., they begin to get taken into Babylonian captivity by Nebuchadnezzar's mighty Babylon. That was in 607. In 586, the temple fell and Jerusalem was burned to the ground. 47 years later, In 539 B.C., the great Babylonian empire, who no one could have believed would ever be taken out, was taken out by the next world ruler, the man named Cyrus, who was king of Persia. How did he do it? How did Cyrus accomplish this? He used the water channels. The water channels. Babylon was considered impregnable. It was a massive and mighty city. The walls around Babylon, and again, you Bible students know this, were 350 feet high, 87 feet thick. I'm asking our building committee to consider something like that for the church. 87 feet thick with 220 watchtowers around these walls. Six chariots could ride side by side atop the walls of Babylon. Amazing in its might. The Euphrates River itself came right to the city and then was diverted around it like a huge moat, providing water for the city. Well, how'd that work? At the base of the walls, underwater, there were channels cut, and the water would flow right into the heart of the city and provide fresh, living, running water for the people. The city stores were so rich in Babylon, it was said they could last 20 years under siege without having to open their gates to go out for food. This was an incredible, again, impregnable structure. But on that fateful night, Cyrus brilliantly deduced a plan. Six miles upriver, he diverted the entire Euphrates into a massive lake. And at that diversion, the water slowly went down. No one inside the walls of Babylon had any idea what was going on. When the water got down to a trickle, Cyrus' men quietly walked right under the walls and into the city. They were in the middle of the city attacking before anyone even knew what was going on. It's an incredible story. Chapter 44, verse 27, going back, says, It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up. It is I who make your rivers dry. You see, it was the Lord's plan, not Cyrus's plan, to dry up the rivers going into Babylon so the men could get in. And talk about a specific prophecy. It even mentions what happened that night to Belshazzar, the acting ruler of Babylon. Look at verse 1 of chapter 45. You may have caught this going by and wondered what it meant. To subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings. Let me read Daniel's description of the same thing. Loosing the loins of kings. The king's face grew pale, Daniel 5.6. His thoughts alarmed him. His hip joints went slack. (laughs) And his knees began to knock together. What does that mean? It means the prophecy is so specific it mentions Belshazzar's incontinence. Really? Well, I I understand it depends on what translation you (laughs) use. You know, right, right now we're, we're trying to get David potty trained. I never thought we'd go back. You know, here we are in that season of life. And I'm thinking maybe if a hand appeared and started writing on the bathroom wall, David could go. Because that's what happened to Belshazzar. 
Isaiah 45, verse 4, reading on, For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name, Cyrus. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. What's the title of honor? My anointed. Cyrus, you are my anointed. Verse 5, I, the Lord... I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. Gang, the conquest of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians in this coalition under the command of Cyrus took place in 539 B.C. One year later, in 538 B.C., Cyrus made a proclamation. Exactly as the Lord said He would, a proclamation. Keep your finger in Isaiah and turn back to the book of Ezra. Go left until you get to Ezra. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah... You there yet? Everybody getting there? Good. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Cyrus the Persian, not Cyrus the Jew. And it was his decree that caused the temple to be rebuilt. Verse 3, Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. That's the decree of Cyrus. That he would go and, and, and cause this to happen. Now back in Isaiah. Flip back there. Isaiah 45, picking up in verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I will gird you though you have not known me. That men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being. And creating calamity. Does does God create calamity? Well, apparently He does. His Word says so. I am the Lord who does all these things. Skip down to verse 12. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands. I ordained all their host. I have aroused him in righteousness and I will make all his ways smooth and he, Cyrus, will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. What exactly did Cyrus get out of this? Nothing. In fact, he gave. He commanded Persians and everybody in the world to give to the Jewish people that they might take it back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. It's an absolutely amazing story. Why would Cyrus do this? Well, Josephus tells us that he heard about the prophecy. And I wonder if perhaps in that day when Cyrus came into Babylon, having conquered it, perhaps an old prophet met him in the palace there, and said, your name's Cyrus, isn't it? How did you know? God told me. He also told me what you're going to do. Josephus says that Cyrus was so impressed by this prophecy already written down by Isaiah that 150 years earlier that he decided he'd better fulfill it. And he played right into God's hand. Listen, it was his choice. He acted in his own free will. But God made it happen. And we see here this amazing marriage of God's sovereignty and man's free will functioning side by side, hand in hand. You might not have voted for Cyrus. No thinking Jew would have. Not in that day. But Cyrus was God's man. 
Cyrus was the one who was there for that appointed time to fulfill God's plan. Now, the next member of the Association of the Anointed understood sovereignty even better than Cyrus did. Turn in your Bibles back to 2 Samuel. If you get to Chronicles, keep going left. If you get to Kings, keep going left. 2 Samuel chapter 12. David. David is the second man in the association of his anointed, my anointed. David is king of Israel, was a seasoned king. In fact, by the time we get to Daniel, or I'm sorry, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, by the time we get there, David is in his mid-50s. Okay? And at this time in his life, midlife crisis hits. We know the story. After seeing Bathsheba bathing on her rooftop, David wanted her. He took her to himself and he committed adultery with her and she got pregnant. And this story, to cover up the affair, it's amazing, David calls her husband, Uriah the Hittite, home from battle. He was off fighting battles, which is probably what David should have been done or should have been doing. It wouldn't have happened this way had he gone off to war with the kings who fight their wars in the springtime. But he stayed home. He's lazing about the palace. This takes place, this adultery, and David has to cover it up. He calls Uriah back. And he tries to get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife so that the whole adultery thing is covered up. The pregnancy could be blamed on Uriah. Everybody would go on as if nothing had happened. Well, you know it doesn't work that way. David tried two times to get Uriah to go home. He even tried getting him drunk so Uriah wouldn't know what he was doing. But Uriah, because he was a fiercely loyal fighting man, one of David's mighty men, by the way, because he was a loyal soldier, would not go home for pleasure when his fellow brothers were fighting in the field. So he slept at the king's gate. Twice this happened, and finally David in frustration sends Uriah back to the front lines with a message for Joab, and the message said, put Uriah in the front lines, pull back and let him be killed, and that's exactly what happened. Now adultery has turned into cover-up, has turned into murder, and David is behind all of this. Bathsheba became David's wife nine months later, bore his child, but nothing gets past the Lord. He sent Nathan the prophet to comfort to confront David. And here, here's the rest of the story. Verse 13 of chapter 12. After Nathan's confrontation, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, watch this, you sinners. <laughs> which, which includes me. Okay, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. Wow. That's grace. That's grace right there. How could God possibly forgive me my sin? Well, let's see. Adultery, cover-up, murder. Your sins are forgiven. Can God forgive the most heinous of sin? You better believe it. And so, your sins are forgiven. However, verse 14, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. And so Nathan went into his house and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. Now watch what happens. Watch David's reaction, his response to all this. David therefore inquired of God for the child. David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. What's he doing? Interceding. This was a night of intense intercessory prayer on the part of David. Please, please let the child live. Please, Lord, don't take the child. This is my my desire. My heart's cry to you, Lord. Allow my child to live. Heal my son. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. And this goes on for seven days straight. David is praying and fasting and weeping before the Lord. On the seventh day, verse 18, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him the child's dead, since he might do himself harm? What do we do with this situation, they wonder? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. 
So, David arose from the ground. He washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house and when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. And then his servant said to him, what I would have said, what is this thing that you've done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now that he has died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. What amazing faith. What an incredible perspective. (laughs) David's servants are watching this play out before them. And it seems bizarre. Why would you act this way? We do the opposite, don't we? If a child dies, that's when the weeping begins. That's when the horror, that's when the difficulty comes on us. Not before. David, it was the opposite. And after the child dies, the first thing he did, number one on his mind, after washing and anointing himself to be appropriate, he goes to church. And he worships God. He worships God. Even for his sin, David fully accepted God's sovereign will. The child has died. That is God's answer. I accept it. Praise the Lord. David was a man just like me, just like you. He was no different. He was capable of incredible sin as we see at the beginning of this story. But he was also capable of great faith as we see at the end of this story. He trusted God. It is the hand of the Lord that directs the way of kings. And the king can either accept that or be channeled by it. Cyrus, his anointed, was channeled by the Lord. He was set up and agreed to go along once it all became clear to him. David was not channeled by the Lord. He just trusted in the Lord. And so wherever the Lord said, whatever the Lord wanted him to do, him to do, that's what he did. The king's heart is like channels of water. In the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he wishes. So, should we then be politically passive? Listen, take a lesson from David. We should be prayerfully active until the decision is made. But, once the decision is made, we accept it as the will of God. We're 19 months out of the next election. Lord willing, should we last here that long? And a decision will be made. Between now and then, pray actively. Seek the will of the Lord. Cry out for this country actively. But when the decision is made, accept it as the will of God. Did you know that God didn't vote for McCain Palin? (laughs) Well, Pastor Rick, how do you know that? Because they're not in office. (laughs) And in this coming election, whatever your political persuasion is, I encourage you to passionately be active in prayer but when the choice is made you accept the will of God and you go worship praise God you've made the decision Lord what do you have for us now where are you taking us now Cyrus was not my choice but apparently he was yours what does this mean for your people now Lord And so then we pray, God bless America. God bless Barack Obama. God bless his administration. God bless Nancy Pelosi and John Bonner and the people in our leadership. God bless them. God give them wisdom to lead this country. Lord, channel them in the direction of your will. Like water courses, redirect Use whatever circumstance you need to, Father, to bring about, not my will, not the will of the British Christian Fellowship, not the will of a Christian coalition, but the will of God. Use all of us, Lord, to the accomplishment of your will. So, Rick, are you a Calvinist? Nope. I'm not. Note that this sovereignty is interesting. It's directed at kings, at world shapers. And the Lord does move to impact world events to affect His perfect will. 
But I also believe that Scripture is clear that each individual man and woman is free. We are free to choose, free to live our lives, free to do what we're going to do. And that's what we celebrate in this country. For we're celebrating tomorrow our independence. But Christian brothers and sisters, don't walk independent of the Lord. I am a free man who has chosen to be fully and completely and wholeheartedly dependent on God. You know what today is? It's Dependence Day. And I depend on Him. Well, if the Lord channels these courses for the accomplishment of His ultimate good, it sounds kind of like manipulation. Is your God a manipulator? No. You see, manipulation is selfish, and manipulation is unfair. Manipulation is forcing. God's work is profoundly unselfish. God's work in this world is astoundingly fair. You see, the the exertion of His will is to bring about the salvation of all people. That's His desire. That's what He works toward. So, you're not a Calvinist, but you're a Universalist? No. Because all people will not choose to accept the exertion of God's will. But if you ask the Lord, what's your desire for this world? He would say that everybody gets saved. That's my heart, that's my desire, that's what I long for. But I'm not going to force anybody. I will use events, I will channel people's lives, I will bring them into circumstances where they have to deal with me, but I'm not going to force them to choose me. And that's the balance of sovereignty and free will. God is active and He is at work, but man is free to choose. Trusting God's sovereignty is simply recognizing that there is a loving, compassionate, gracious, perfect king who is seeking to lead his subjects, who is asking his subjects, will you be led? Will you follow me? Let me give you a couple of quick personal things to note about his sovereignty. Considering Cyrus thinking about David and their reaction, number one, God's sovereignty brings about restful peace. God's sovereignty brings restful peace. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And I don't doubt that, the Lord, that, that Paul said, Lord, bless Nero. Lord, channel Nero. Lord, use Emperor Nero for the perfection of Your will. I I ask that all kings, all leaders be, be prayed for. Why? So we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's a key there, gang, that we understand God's sovereignty and we pray for His sovereignty that we might live in peace. The amount of faith that you put, that I put, in the sovereignty of God will directly affect the amount of peace and quiet and tranquility we have in our lives. On election night, the amount of faith I put in God's work in the process is the amount of peace I have as I watch the whole thing unfold. I pray for those in authority. We pray to the sovereign God, resting in Him to direct the water courses, to channel the waters. Let me ask you more personally than a president or a ruler. Who has authority over you? Who in your life is the immediate authority? Children, kids, teenagers. How are you with your parents? Pray for them. They are in authority over you. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. For they are in authority over you. Oh, he said it. I can't believe he said it. (laughs) Authority in terms of roles, in terms of positions, not in terms of power or lordship. That husbands and wives respect and love and pray for each other. Workers, honor your boss. He's a jerk. He's in authority over you. Yeah, but God put him there. And put you there if you're walking in the will of God, trusting Him. Those in the teachers at school, oh my teacher, such an idiot. Pray for those who are in authority over you. 
Because whether you agree with them or not, in so doing, you rest in God's sovereignty and that brings peace. Secondly, not only does God's sovereignty bring restful peace, God's sovereignty brings right perspective. Right perspective. Don't let this be lost on you. The second son of, uh, of David and Bathsheba, first son died, the child born out of, their, out of their adultery. The second son was a boy named Solomon. Solomon, Solomon who would write, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. Now, listen to what Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes. Just go slightly to the right of Proverbs. We're going to get to Ecclesiastes pretty soon here. And it's not as depressing as you might think, but it's very challenging. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. God's sovereignty brings a right perspective. Listen to what Solomon writes here. Love this. Verse 1, chapter 5. Guard your steps, or watch your steps, as you go to the house of God. Now, now wait a minute, i got to tell you a little side note. If you go to Jerusalem, and you walk up the southern steps of the temple, you note something. They are completely uneven. I mean, it's like bad building. If, if the steps in my house ended up looking like the steps on the southern side of the temple of Jerusalem, I would have had to pull Niccolo back in and say, fix it! Because they're completely uneven. It was on purpose. And this verse is exactly why. That people would watch their steps as they were approaching the temple. It was Solomon's way in in the building of the temple, in the whole construction, the whole idea of it. It was the idea of the builders that you would have to stop and really think about your steps as you were going in there. You couldn't just... Go run and run on up the steps and not think about what you were about to do. You had to pause and reflect because if you didn't, you're going to trip and fall on your face. Watch your steps. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near, watch this, to listen. Maybe I should say draw near, listen to this, to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know what they are doing. What's the sacrifice of fools? Interesting. Delich says the Hebrew word translated to offer. The word is natan. And it is not the usual expression for the offering of sacrifice. It may possibly refer to the feast which accompanied such sacrifices and which often degenerated into excess. Okay, what does that mean? It means that the sacrifice of fools is my excessive opinion. The sacrifice of fools, I'm going up to the temple because i got a thing or two to tell the Lord. I'm going to talk to... The child dies, and it would be David saying, oh, that's it. And rushing up the steps of the temple saying, Lord, this is not right. Lord, this is not what I voted for. Didn't you hear my prayers? How can you allow my wife now? or Bathsheba, she's, she's weeping. I've lost a son. How can you do no see that's the sacrifice of fools. My excessive opinion. Solomon wisely advises we give such opinions a one way ticket to Shuttyville. Okay? I've got a lot of opinions about how this world should be run. I do. I have opinions about who I think our next president should be, and by the way, it's no one on the ticket so far. I have, my opinion, I could be wrong. I have opinions about what I would do differently if I were the sovereign king of the world. Don't you wish I was? <laughs> and I knew that would elicit a laugh. What a joke. Are you kidding me? President Rick? No. The Hebrew writer gives a far better sacrifice than my opinion, than your opinion. Hebrews 13.15 says, Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. I'm not going to give God my opinion. When the decision has been made, that's the decision. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I worship you, Lord. Look at verse 2. Solomon says, Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven. Here's the perspective. God is in heaven. You are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. God's sovereignty brings a right perspective. His perspective. Okay, so what you're saying is, God knows everything, and I know this much. Exactly. 
And with that perspective, I can say, okay, my knowledge, God's knowledge. Who am I going to trust? Who am I going to listen to? Who am I going to assume is making the right decision? He said to his anointed David, the child will die. David prayed otherwise. But when the death occurred, David accepted it. God said to his anointed, Cyrus, build me a house in Jerusalem. Send the Jews back to rebuild their temple and their land. And Cyrus did, just as he was directed. But Cyrus and David, important and as honored as they were to that exclusive club, both prefigure the third member of the assembly of the anointed Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, whose name means anointed, Christ, Mashiach. The Anointed One. Yeshua HaMashiach. Cyrus is its interesting. He prefigures Jesus. He is a picture or a type of Jesus. God called him in Isaiah 44. He calls him my shepherd. Cyrus, my shepherd. Well, Jesus said in John 10, 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. God called Cyrus my anointed. The word again, Mashiach. Remember Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman and she said, I know Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. And when that one comes, He will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. I'm the anointed one. In Isaiah 45 verse 1, God says He will open doors before Cyrus so so that gates will not be shut. Interesting. Because Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, Behold, I've put a open, uh, before you an open door which no one can shut. Cyrus is a picture of Jesus. Cyrus was anointed and appointed for the sake of the Jewish people. So was Jesus. Zechariah 6.13, speaking of Messiah, says, It is He who will build the temple of the Lord, and He will bear the honor and sit and rule on His throne. Thus He will be a priest on His throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices, the office of priest, the office of king, Christ the Anointed. And Cyrus portrayed all of that, a picture of Jesus to come. David also prefigures Jesus. And I began to study this out and look up verses, and we would have been here another hour and a half. Some of you would like that, I know, but we have another service. Okay, I'm not going to get all into it right now, other than to say that, that David prefigured Jesus Christ, the son of David, in remarkable ways. It's a fascinating comparison, just to go through the life of David and compare it to the life of Christ, how David points to, prefigures Jesus. And I love this story. Jesus in Matthew 22, verse 42, is talking with the Pharisees. And he says, what do you think about the Christ, the anointed one? Whose son is he? They said, the son of David. And he said, well, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, quote, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. (laughs) And Jesus would say later, Revelation 22.16, I am the root and the descendant of David. You know, one of my favorite verses, I'm the root of David, I came before him, I'm the descendant of David, I came after him. But here's the amazing thing about Jesus. He was God in the flesh, God among us, Emmanuel, and yet, yet he accepted the Father's sovereignty over his earth walk, over his earthly life. Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 6 that although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And having accepted this position, Jesus showed us how to bow the knee to a sovereign God. I've been asked the question, well, if Jesus was God among us, why did He pray to God the Father? Why did He acquiesce His will to God the Father? Because Jesus was not only the perfect example of God, He was also the perfect example for man. He walked and He showed us. It's the best way to teach, by the way, to show first, here's how you do it. Parents, it's what you do with your kids. Here's how you pray. Here's how you worship. It's why we keep our children in through communion both hours. That they might see us walking out the example. And Jesus did it. 
But the sovereignty of God in relationship with Jesus, who was God in the flesh, culminated for Jesus there in the garden in that remarkable scene. Incredibly dramatic. Facing the shame of the cross and the sin of the world in separation from the Father, Jesus rested completely in God's will. Luke 22.42, He said, Father, if You're willing, remove this cup from Me, yet not My will, but Yours be done. Your will, Your will, Sovereign Lord. If God's anointed Cyrus, or if God's anointed David, or most of all, if God's anointed Jesus Christ chose His sovereignty, how about you? How about you? The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wishes. Who rules your life? Who's in authority over you? Who do you bend the knee to and bow the head to? His sovereignty will bring you restful peace and right perspective. Now I'm convinced that American pessimism and dissatisfaction is directly related to ignoring or rebelling against God's sovereignty over us. If we will but choose His will... If we will worship Him as one nation under God, then we will be at peace. Then we will have rest. Then we will have right perspective. The amount of trust we put into God's sovereignty over our nation, over our leaders, and over our lives, is equal to the amount of peace and perspective we will have. And Father, we just pray that You will give us this right perspective. And teach us, Lord, to walk in trust and in peace and in faith. Lord, if it is Your will that the country around us crumbles, we walk in Your sovereignty. If it is Your will that that America comes out of this ongoing financial global struggle, then Lord, we walk in Your sovereignty. If any man or woman be elected to office, Lord, we pray for the truth, we seek Your counsel, but when the decision is made, we walk in Your sovereignty. Father, teach us to trust You more. In Jesus' name, Amen.